most blokes, particularly farmers, I think look after their tractors more than they look after their own bodies. You know, they, they won't miss the service, that thousand hour service, because they understand if they, they do, that might that machine might let them down when they most critically need it. And then it's, the analogy's just so clear, you know, yeah. it, 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 the ultimate machine is, uh, is the one that we walk around in and, and you have to, you have to look after it. You have to, you have to check in. Welcome to Healthy Minds, Healthy Vines, the wellbeing podcast for growers, proudly brought to you by the Wine Grape Council of South Australia, sponsored by Perza. Hosted by journalist and award-winning mental health podcaster Callum McPherson and columnist for the Australian and the world of fine wine and Australia's leading wine writer when sold by the kilo, Nick Ryan. Let's crush this. Today we're joined by Ashley Keegan. Ash wears more hats than most, including his role as CEO of Food and Beverage Australia Limited, better known as Fable. For this chat, we've asked him to wear his grape grower hat, which every grape grower should actually have, and tap into his insight as the chair of the Viticultural Committee of Australian Grape and Wine. Australian Grape and Wine is the national body representing grape growers and winemakers. Head to the show notes for more links and all the details. Ash, you were a chiropractor before you started in viticulture. How did you go from one to the other? Yeah, well, Callum, I accidentally ended up in the wine industry, really. I was, uh, Don't we all? Yeah, well, it was pretty much. I, I met my wife in Kalgoorlie, and uh, we moved down to Margaret River. Um, I was going to set up a practice down there, and her father just bought a vineyard. And unfortunately, he got crook and got diagnosed with cancer and needed a hand to look after his vineyard. So I sort of sat there and looked out the window and said, I assume the vines are those things in a row out there. So that was... That was my start to the to the industry, and uh, what I expected to be a few weeks was sort of turned into 25 years, and I fell in love with doing what we do, and still do it today. So would have had a fair bit to learn on the fly there. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Like I, I think one of the things our industry does really well, like literally, people knew what was going on, and you know, the next door neighbour show up and show me how to tie a wine knot, or you know, one of my best mates, Steve James from from Voyager Estate at the time was um, one of our customers. So he showed up and, you know, sort of he was my viticultural go-to guy. But um, probably one of the things that I I learned through chiropractic was you learn to learn. And I remember walking into the office and there was a stack of about five years worth of great grower magazines and I started on the top one and (laughs) read and (laughs) went to the next time. And uh, yeah, it was was pretty much, I think I had my first mobile at that stage so there was no google at that point to learn so but the, the the industry's great like i remember sort of reading articles going mike mccarthy dr mike mccarthy he knows a fair bit about irrigation so i'll just ring him up and ask him about you know how do i irrigate a vine and straight on the other end of the phone probably one of the smartest irrigators on the planet was on the other end of the phone to this guy who knew nothing sort of helped me through those decisions so and Pretty much most decisions that I made in the early days were a bit like that. It was about finding someone to to help me with that decision. And um, yeah, as I said, you know, the industry does a great job in that context. You're only you're only a phone call away from mm. someone who can help you out. Tapping so, into a hive mind, really, yeah. it's yeah, yeah. the way it works. But yeah, it is. Good description. Was there a moment, you know, that you went, you saw yourself fall over the edge and go, that's it, I'm, I'm, I'm viticulture now and, you know, yeah. cracking backs be gone? I was still doing locums, you know, for the first couple of years and and I I sort of probably got to a point where I, I actually just, ac- or not accidentally, I enrolled myself in the Charles Sturt degree just because I wanted to learn a few things and you could just buy subjects at that point and Charles Sturt rang up about six months or 
about nine months in and said I'd knocked off, you know, X amount of subjects, do I actually want to enrol? And I thought, oh, at that point I made a decision that I'd enrol and, and, uh, and keep going. But probably about two years in, I reckon, I, I thought, you know, I really love the, it's going to sound silly, but the things that I liked about viticulture were very similar to some of the things I liked about being chiropractor. I was still diagnosing stuff. Instead of using an x-ray machine, I'd use a soil sample or a PDL test. Or, and so those sort of intellectual challenges were still there and I got to chase them down a lot. But, um, yeah, I, I literally loved being outside. I'd grown up in the suburbs of Melbourne, so I hadn't, uh, I hadn't done the farm thing. I literally fell in love with doing that. So unfortunately, I don't get to do that much anymore these days, but uh, that's what sort of flicked the switch for me, I think. Yep. Do you ever miss cracking backs? No, look, I, I, I don't. My brother's still a chiropractor. I've still got great mates that are doing that. I, I sometimes I, I think about the, again, it's probably that intellectual challenge. I, I love the one-on-one. Um, with patients. I love helping people in that context. But, um, you know, now I guess particularly as I've grown through my career and I'm sort of in more leadership roles that I still get to help people. I still get to impact on stuff. And some of the things we talk about today, I get to influence. And maybe I end up putting my hands on people, but I still influence people's health and and stuff at a day-to-day level as well. So, yeah. And you do cover a a fair bit of ground and that would take quite a bit of energy, I imagine. How's health and fitness factored into your life? My wife can't hear me uh, at this stage. <laughs> so that's, uh, no, uh, look, I think it's something that I, obviously with the background knowledge, I'm conscious of that. I, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to do more exercise like most guys would, but I still, you know, I'm conscious of the way I, I look after myself at a day-to-day level. I think one of the things we should talk about today is, you know, making sure you're fronting up to your GP and checking in. Now, you know, I've clocked over 50 now and it's, that's an important age. You know, each of us needs to be checking in. I do that regularly and, and that's a pretty important component of it. And When you say regularly, how regularly? Yeah, it's good. I, I've got a really great GP, which I think is pretty important to have, Nick. You know, I get the, I get the pathology slip in the, in the mail each 12 months yep. that says go and get these blood tests and I'll see you in a week. And... You know that's that's for the standard men stuff, yeah. and uh, but then you know if I'll, I'll go as required, yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah and we, we're probably talking to a lot of people who would never miss a service on the Ute or on a, on a harvester or something else, but you know might miss a service on themselves. Oh, I've said that many times. I, I think most most blokes, particularly farmers, I think look after their tractors more than they look after their own bodies. You know they, they won't miss a service that thousand hour service because. They understand if they they do that might that machine might let them down when they most critically need it, and then it's the analogy is just so clear. You know, yeah. it, 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 the ultimate machine is uh, is the one that we walk around in, and and you have to you have to look after it. You have to you have to check in and uh, and make sure that's getting serviced as well. Why do you think growers are reluctant to go? I think if we knew the answer to that question, we'd be doing this interview on our yacht in Mallorca, I think, yeah. because... Uh, <laughs> Mine's you know, being serviced. Yeah, yeah well, that's right. I, I think a few things. I think we delude ourselves in the fact that we get busy and, uh, and we don't have time for some of that stuff and that, you know, there's always something to do on, on the farm. There's always something to do in any business, in an organisation. And, and I think sometimes, 
you know, if you're completely frank, sometimes there's a bit of fear associated with that as well. I don't want to know about bit of bury stuff your head that's in bad. the sand. Yeah. You got the you got the bucket of sand out, and you know that's probably without trying to be too Freudian about it. I think that's probably some of the things that limit why people and particularly guys go to the doctor. Yeah, yeah. being busy can never be an excuse because it's probably if you are that busy, you need it. You know, you yeah. really need it. It's time to you know, get checked. Yeah, and I think, and, and we, you know, busy people schedule themselves a lot and it's just a matter of prioritising that and, uh, you know, it's making sure that you get that, that order right. It would be easy to see it as an extra stress though, you know, when you've been working all day or you are particularly busy or even it's, if it's just your usual routine to see that going to the doctor is an extra hassle. You're going to have to travel to go there or put in that extra effort. It makes sense how that can be your mindset. But I guess the thing with it is if you don't, look after it at the time it's going to end up costing you down the road and it's going to end up costing you more time and so really staying on top of it as much as you can is going to avoid it getting to some point where you're going to have to take a significant amount of time off or you're going to have to deal with something that's going to cost you a lot more perhaps than if you just have those regular checkups sort of like anything you know if you prevention's the best best cure for this sort of stuff but a lot of the time we don't actually act until it's a real a real problem yeah, I remember, I still remember sitting in a pathology lecture back in the day and the pathology pressure professor stood up and said, oh, you know, what's the first sign of a heart attack? You know, people put their hands up and said, oh, it's chest pain, it's jaw pain, or it's, no, nah, uh, what's the first sign of a heart attack in most of the situations? Well, the answer is simple, it's death. And so, you know, it, it, it sort of struck me at then and it sticks with me, whatever it is, 30 years later, that, Often, you know, some of the things that can impact us pretty significantly don't have that sort of lead time. So you need to, you know, if your cholesterol's high, you need to know about it. And um, so a simple way to do that is just go and get your blood test and get it sorted out. Yeah, and I suppose imagining that, you know, it's not a problem for me today, therefore I'm not thinking about the future. It's not a great way to go about it. But anything that's not immediate, the temptation is, oh, we can always do it tomorrow. There's always something more pressing to take care of before that. But if we always have that attitude, that's what leads to one day out of nowhere, seemingly, you know, disaster can strike. And really there, there was a build up to it. We just, just chose to ignore the signs. So, Yeah, I think you raised a really good point, Callum. The other thing too is we learn more and more that, you know, our genetic history is important as well. So if mum or dad or your brothers have had problems like my my dad's had an aggressive prostate cancer. That means, by definition, I'm statistically yeah. more likely to have that. And so, therefore, my brothers and I were, you know, offered an earlier age to go and get the checks, and and that's something that's really critically important for us, uh, you know, as a family. But it, you know, it's no different to girls with, you know, family history of breast cancer and anybody with family history of bowel cancers and things like that as well. So. Yeah, I guess you had a, a run-in with skin cancer recently. Yeah, I had uh, malignant skin cancer removed from my neck uh, four weeks ago. And again, it was a good example where, you know, I've, I've got a great GP and I just front up to my GP and go, do you have a look at this? And he's going, oh, I think it's okay, we'll freeze it off. We froze it off and three weeks later or two and a half weeks later, still there, back to my GP and go, no, nah, I don't, don't like the look of that. Let's uh, let's get that cut off. And, and, and fortunately, you know, that's all clean margin and all good things like that but it's a just an example where as it was a, wasn't wasn't a big issue for me at the time but it was quite rapidly became something that needed to come off pretty quickly because, uh, i mean that is i mean 
one of those sort of industry prevalent you know issues as well you know, yeah. in viticulture i mean people spending a lot of time out in the vineyard that's you know something you have to be really mindful of yeah or well, a bit like yourself Nick, we know bronze dozies yeah uh, no, exactly. in the, in the Quintessential definition of it, yeah. Got, you know. So, uh, yeah, no, it's certainly for me, you know, I'm, I've always been really conscious about sunscreen. I've got a big bottle sitting in the car door, you know, and I, if I'm off to the paddocks, that's the first thing I'll whack on. But, you know, you can be as careful as you can be, but we're in Australia. Yeah, yeah. And I go surfing and I do all that stuff. And so by definition, we're, uh, and, and again, unfortunately, it's you tick over, you, you know, you you get a bit older and uh, and age catches up with some of that stuff as well and it, it it's, a, a, it's a risk factor. Just yeah, look, it's something I did a couple of months ago <clears throat> and will now do probably every year, you know, for the rest of my life is a full yep. body sort of skin check and you know, there's various things all, all over this this body that just need to be <laughs> to need Too to much be information, watched, mate. Need to be watched <laughs> and looked at closely. Yeah. But, you know, there are and then they do change and you'd think something might be, you know, fine and not really an issue but... Yeah, they can change. You blokes are a bit older than me. How does oh, yeah, the thanks uh, for pointing it out. Just a little, just a little bit. Uh, how does how does the attitude towards health and and getting those checkups and I suppose maybe the mindset about just looking after yourself? How have you noticed that change? Maybe since your your twenties to now, it's harder. Yeah, I, I I think it's you know. Like I, staying fit's harder. That's probably the thing that I find. Yeah, I feel that too. <laughs> Nick can relate to that <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I still, I, I still run around and play baseball with my mates on the weekend in a semi-organised uh, fashion. But uh, yeah, you feel it. You just feel, you know, you you don't have the same stamina that you used to. Even this weekend, up working on the farm um, myself, and you just can't go all day like you used to. And it's a matter of, um, you know, from a background perspective musculoskeletal injuries and things like that can increase as well so you just if you're on the shovel you're going to need to take a break and uh, or do it properly and and or you can't just shrug it off and run out of the footy field next week anyway so. yeah 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 and there are a lot of people who think i oh, you know i can still do what I, I used to do in my 20s and they're the ones that you know will keep hurting themselves you know they just push themselves it's a matter i guess it is a matter of knowing your own body and your own limitations and how you can get the best out of yourself yeah, it is, I think, but also not to give up too. You know, like, like I honestly played my, my first string pitcher in my baseball team, 72 years of age, and, uh, you know, he's a that's screaming a, example. It's a strong of, shoulder. Yeah, it is, and, <laughs> but it's it's a great example of, you know, it's it's as much here as, mm. as it is anywhere else. And, um, it's better use it or lose it. Yeah, it is, and, and uh, so I think that, yeah, it's important. It's important in that context. When we're talking about the pillars of health, we're thinking about diet, exercise, sleep. Do you think the grower lifestyle makes it harder to stay on top of all those things? It depends on where, where in the grower stream. You know, if you if you're at home on the farm, I think you know, it's just that extra lap that you want to do or that extra tank that you put out, and so timing often uh, throws out the window. I'm certainly find it difficult because you know you do a lot of travel, whether that's the uh, you know Tintinara Roadhouse just doesn't have the most. Uh, I shouldn't say that. Uh, it's got some fantastic food, and which is my choices at the Tintinara Roadhouse might be the problem rather than. The- yeah, but there's no. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I love a good steak sandwich, <laughs> yeah. but there might be nutritionists out there who say you know yeah. you don't have Four one. Every, a week, don't have so one good. every day, yeah, yeah, yeah. and maybe you know 
get the smaller chips. <laughs> so, so I think timing's probably one one thing we touched on that earlier before, and then um, you know putting yourself in the situation where you got you know the right the right foods to eat as well, as opposed to um, the easy foods to eat or the the quickest foods to eat is probably important. I suppose when you got a lot to do, is you might easily sacrifice one of those pillars of health because you think, well, if I spend time doing that, then I'm not going to get what needs to be done, done, and that's my priority. But I can see how you, you fall into having that attitude every day and really neglecting some part of your life that ends up biting you in the ass eventually. Do you think that attitude's fairly prevalent? I think so. It comes back down to why we don't go to the doctor because we're busy. Well, why don't we? Why aren't we exercising more because we're busy? Or why aren't we taking the time to make ourselves a decent meal because we're perceived to be busy? And it really comes back down to again that prioritising of what's important, what's really important, as opposed to what we perceive to be important at the at that particular point in time. Another part of that, I reckon, would be getting enough sleep because girls will be getting up early and often going to bed late you'd think as well and we know how crucial it is to get around that eight hours of sleep do you think there's also a, a bit of a tendency to neglect sleep or say oh, i only need four hours or it's better if i'm i'm up at sparrow's fart you think that's sort of the attitude too uh, i think that's and particularly one of the things that alarms me a little bit in the industry um, is the sort of there's a bit of bravado around it at harvest yeah. and um, that's pretty dangerous. And if you're not, yeah, if you're not sort of doing 20 hours in a day, you're yeah. not doing it properly yeah. kind of thing. And I read a study ages ago that it said if you've been awake for 17 hours, it's equivalent of driving at 0.05. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I never drink drive and so I'm really conscious of when I'm, when I'm hitting that 17 hour mm. and, you know, I've, I've slept in the back of the car at Canalpin because I've hit that mm. 17 hours and it's enough. And it's uh, one of those things that you'd sort of shrug off and be like, oh, no, nah, it wouldn't be the same. But yeah, it's well I'll, be, I'll be right. I'll be fine. But so we, even in our business, we set harvest schedules for 10 hours. The guys are allowed to go to 12 if they have a breakdown. But after 12, they shut it down and it'll, it'll be there tomorrow. It's the same as other jobs where it becomes illegal at a certain point to keep pushing yep. staff to work. Yeah, I think, I think it's really, really critically important. And Nick touched on it. I think there's an industry sort of halo around that. But the only thing that really worries me and, you know, as a CEO of our organisation is that phone call where one of our team's been hurt. And, and it's happened. Really. It, it happens all the time. Too many stories of it Because uh, your concentration goes to shit after not very long if yeah. you're not sleeping. And, and look, and our guys, they're... They're going hard during harvest. They're operating machinery. They're in, you know, high attentive, high focus. They might be sitting down and operating machinery, but it is it is mentally exhausting to do that. You get in your car yeah, to you drive home. To get home, and it's probably and a decent distance to get correct. home. Correct, and some of, exactly that. You know, some of them have got thirty and forty minute drives home, and it's it's not that hard to envisage. You know, touch wood someone nodding off in that situation yeah. and catastrophic outcomes. And so I think that's where the way we try to engineer around that and, and it make it okay just to shut it down and, and it'll be there next, it'll be there tomorrow. And yeah, it's important and that fruit's important, but it'll be there tomorrow to get off the next shift. Uh, yeah, yeah, and you have to be here tomorrow as well. Yeah, it do. And, and I think, like, it's, it may, you might say that's easier in a bigger company like ours where 
we're going on stop and it might be harder for an individual farmer but but it gets probably even more critical with an individual farmer and he's that's his crop if i put my grow hat on sure crusher shuts down i can tell you your fruit won't be picked and uh, it'll sit there till tomorrow so if your harvester break down breaks down it's okay for it to sit there until tomorrow as well another part of that sleep deficit it doesn't mean if you're not sleeping for so plenty of people might say oh well i don't not sleep for 17 hours so therefore i'm fine but your sleep deficit actually builds up over time as well so say you're supposed to be getting eight hours a night but you're getting five instead by the end of the week you've got a deficit that's 17 hours and you and you're feeling those same effects yeah so even if you're thinking like oh, i still sleep every night it's not you know it's not that bad that does build up over time and the most important part of that sleep cycle is between that sort of six to eight hours in rem sleep when we're dreaming a lot that's when your brain's actually recharging rejuvenating so if you're skipping that part every night and the sleep you're getting is actually not all that revitalizing and it's going to end up having a, a big effect down the road and you won't even really realize why you're feeling so tired or why you're feeling like you can't focus but um you're just missing a few hours night after night after night can end up having that effect yeah and particularly you know like i said an intensive period like harvest if it's a long drawn out you know harvest and you're four five six weeks into it and just little bits every day are adding up i don't know about you guys but i'm i'm certainly and my guys put their hand up and say they'll know when I'm heading into that deficit because I you know I I act differently I make more different irritable decisions, yeah, yeah and you know just ask my wife yeah and, uh, you know but it, but I think it's common for all of us in that context too you and it's a it's those little bits of changes that over over an extended harvest period add up to the point where you know some of our harvests are three months long and uh, you know, particularly if you're going flat out in the wineries, they can be all of that. Mm. And so, can you do like a pre-season before vintage <laughs> hibernation? You mean? Well, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, can you prepare yourself properly for for these, you know, yeah, intensive yeah, periods question. of a work year? I think you become a bit a bit game fit. You become a bit more self-aware, I reckon, too. You know, you, just even these things we're talking about, you sort of get to the point where you know. I think, particularly as you get a bit more mature in your career and a bit more confident in your own skin you go hang on i i do need to take that day off and and recharge or i, I I'm, I'm not going to go there and be there at 6 a.m and that that morning i'll i'll get there in the afternoon just that self-awareness probably i don't know I, I think it's like all the things that we've talked about you know general health needs to be in pretty good nick if you're going to put yourself under demand but um it's probably more being self-aware during the period to yeah to recharge and seeing some signs and uh, knowing what they are interesting what you say about that overall attitude where some growers might be thinking about what others might say about them if they or even if it's just in their head but if they if they were to say oh you know i make sure i get eight hours sleep every night and someone might be like you're kidding yourself during harvest like who does that and so you're perhaps somewhat judging it off the fact like oh, i must not be working hard enough because there's this general attitude that you're supposed to run yourself into the ground and if you don't then you're not working hard enough we've we've had the opposite Callum. i think again from a leadership point of view an opportunity we've had i've had contractors show up and said i haven't slept for you know 20 hours here's my badge i'm saying well you're not working if i've shut you down you're not operating on my 
on my farm around my staff because that's a risk. Safe. Yeah, it's about changing that mindset as well. Really, it's about what are we the standard that we walk past, the standard we accept, and you know, it's really about understanding that. Yeah, it might be a great parcel of Shiraz, but it's not that important. And how do you sell that to growers, though? I, I imagine that what people want to do is be as effective as possible. So if you're trying to suggest a, a bit of an alternative lifestyle or making a real point of getting enough sleep, I think you, you've got to try to bundle that in with because you end up having a better result. You actually, over the over the period of, of harvest or whenever it is, you actually end up doing a better job. You might not feel like you've worked as hard on a particular day because you weren't out there for 20 hours, but if you were able to stay consistent pretty much every day throughout and you didn't crash and burn halfway through, it's actually going to end up being better. seems like we have to sell it in that way because if it's if it's a case of, yeah, you get enough sleep, but you don't do as, as good a job, you don't get as much done, then like realistically people probably aren't going to do it. You're right, Callum, but I, in reality, with all due respect to us, we're picking grapes and making wine. We're not, we don't have a 12 year old child on operating theater and we're performing neurosurgery on their brain where time might be critical. We're, we're, we're picking grapes and making wine. And yeah, some of that has time elements to it, but it's not life or death. And so I think it's about getting some perspective around that in, in and yeah, being able to step back from that, but you might be able to convince yourself that it's the be all and end all. Because yeah, but but again, it's to me, it's up to the entire supply chain to do that as well. It's about the customer going, look, you know, it's it's about working together from the paddock to the to the fermenters and beyond. That that we all need to be conscious of that in the things that we ask each other to do. And you know, this year is a classic example. The last harvest where there was labours up costs are, uh, are tight and, you know, several wine companies said, oh, we, we're not taking fruit on, you know, a Saturday because then we have to process on a Sunday and we're paying higher premium rates. Well, that tells you how important it is. It's about, it's about yeah. money. <laughs> when it affects well, the bottom line. Yeah, but so, so really, if you're going to make that decision because of, you know, a, a Sunday penalty rate, that should intrinsically um, tell all of us that it's not that life and death. Yeah that it'll be okay on the Monday or it'll be okay to do that on the, the day later because, you know, if, if collectively as an industry we're making those decisions, then it's okay for us in, as individuals to look after ourselves as well. And partly, I suppose, people having such high expectations of themselves, which isn't a bad thing, but you've got to be able to treat yourself like a human being, let yourself off, off the hook to a certain extent when you're talking about a marathon, not a sprint type of a scenario. Some of the challenges for us too comes when Mother Nature throws, you know, the bricks at us as well. So yeah, penalty rates one thing, and something nasty yeah, on a, on a bomb then, screen then is another correct. thing. Yeah, and that's so that's where I, I guess when we talked about match fitness or, or how do you prep, we'll have some contingencies in place if that happens, and it might be that you're working with your next door neighbour, or it might be that the, you, you're calling in the contractor, even though that hurts your bottom line a little bit, but you just got to weigh that decision up as to the risk reward out of that and and that invariably will happen as well so it's um you know it's something that uh having a plan b or a contingency in place helps you out there as well what things do you put in place to look after your staff's well-being so i run sort of 20 odd sites all over the country and i sit in an office in adelaide so i can't be i can't be in every site and i'm 
you know, increasingly not there as often as I would like to be. So I think one of the things I really try to do is instill with my managers uh, a very clear and simple sort of process that if they're in the paddock in the middle of the night and they're going to make a decision and they're not sure about that decision, um, they're not sure of the consequences of that decision, they can't get hold of someone to make them or help them with that decision, then they make it in this order. And it's people, product, profit. So people, never put yourself or anybody else in harm's way. Product, we put, you know, it's a food grade product that we make and people put it in their mouth. So never, ever compromise that. And if you do the first two in that order, then hopefully there's a bit of the third. But so I think probably trying to empower them with that mindset that it's okay if in doubt you chuck it on the ground or if in doubt you stop and you don't you don't push for that 20 hours because you had to get it off because it's not in that it's not following the order because otherwise you know we have sops and policies and procedures for everything from scratching yourself to do all of that but ultimately it's good people making good decisions in tough environments so you have to sort of empower them with a filter that says these are our non-negotiables and, and this is how you make the decision. If you make the decision in that order and it goes wrong, you'll have my 100% support. If you make the decision in a different order and it goes wrong, then you then we'll have a chat about it. But, uh, so I think probably that's one of the core under, underpinning pillars of sort of how I try to look after our staff. And then there's a whole range of other stuff that, you know, I still I sign off on every chemical that comes into our business. I read that from cover to cover I read all the literature and the toxicology and everything on all of those things and sometimes I choose more expensive products mm. to put in our system. Why are you so hot on the safe chemical handling? I guess probably coming out of my background when I first entered the industry you know I, I, one of my particular areas in private practice was you know sort of neuropathology things like MS and motor neurons some of the neurological syndromes and if you look at some of the insecticides that we use, anticholinesterase inhibitors, they actually act on insects the same way some of those pathologies um, manifest in humans as well. And I, so it, that was quite, quite alarming to me, mm. to be frank, when I first sort of recognised the, the active ingredients. So there's a whole series of safety processes, things in place. But when I sort of look at those things, you know, I'm, I'm super hot on our staff wearing PPE and you know you get a warning and then it's you've got to go and find somewhere else to work mm. if you're not uh, prepared to wear PPE and but uh, the, those products now I engineer them out or I accept risk and I guess I'm lucky in our business now in my role as I get to make risk decisions and I understand the fact that if we don't spray that yeah I'm assuming some risk but in the context of I'm accepting that risk or um you know, it's 30 bucks a hectare more to use product Y instead of um, product Z. And then I'm very comfortable with Not that. cutting but, any but corners. Yeah, that, and that's a decision you know, you're making on a, on a, you know, for your business. But, you know, should we be firmer across the industry that those decisions, you know, for those people that will go, well, I will take the cheaper option because, you know, it's all about the, all about the dollar. And then, you know, that's elevating, you know, elevating risk. Should we, as an industry, take that temptation away? Oh, look, the APFMA is the regulating body. So they, don't get me wrong, they, if they've got a registered product, they're some of the, they're some of the highest bars in the world. Yep. Um, so they do a very good job of that. It still doesn't mean that I can't take a 
a, a more raise the bar even more. Yeah, a conservative approach. Well, we we have a forty-eight hour entry period in any product in any one of our vineyards. If you read the label, as soon as it's dry, you can go back in. But again, we read some work years and years ago that Alex Ass presented was about the degradation pathway. So after a certain period, fifty percent of that product is um, degraded away. So it's a it's a small window where we can make a decision to stay out of our paddocks, still get all the things done that we've done, but just the simple exposure curve then has dropped dramatically away. So it's a, it's just a small decision that we can make that I can do the best that I can for my staff in that context. So what can those insecticides do to people if they're exposed to them? Oh, look, there's, there's a range of different products, and it's, but the, the anticholinesterase products, which are old organophosphate, insecticides and many of them are getting banned now but they they work on a neuromuscular junction where the you know the the brain operates through a nerve tells a muscle to 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 fire and that's how we move the signal happens across a neuromuscular junction and it's the chemical that makes that signal jump it's that's the that's the pathway that the insecticides inhibit and block and uh, for insects, obviously, for insects, but correct. But, but mammalian neuro, you know, neuromuscular pathways are similar. So it can get into a situation where, if you if you are accidentally or chronically exposed to those things, you can have you know neuromuscular symptoms. Very rare, but even in our business, I'd take blood tests of all new staff, and so I can have a look at their background levels and to make sure that uh, you know they haven't historically had issues uh, on the farm that if there was an accident on our property i'd know whether it was a pre-existing or or a, as a result of that accident but again you know that was far more prevalent 15 20 years ago when we used to use a lot of that gear you think everyone's pretty wise to that now and uh, generally using safe practices or I, I think so i think i still see a lot of stuff uh, you know go and do a lot of due diligence on other farms and things like that. And I still see practices there that, you know, wouldn't exist under our steam. But, um, but and it's again, probably if there's a message out of this to, to uh, the grower base is, you know, PP is cheap, it's simple and it's, and we don't know what we don't know. We've all, all of us in our careers have used products that were fine, they were safe and no problems only five years later find out that there were some issues associated with that. So I take the approach that if I make the best decisions that I can with the products that we come onto our farm and I provide and, and get all of our guys wearing the best PPE, then I've done the best that I can so that if in 20 years' time there's an issue, I've done the best that I can to protect myself. Yeah, better today. safe than sorry. What about Q fever? Have you had any dramas with that? <laughs> Yeah, someone, so at least has obviously been talking to you about that. I, it's not a laughing matter. I mean, Q fever is a bacterial infection. That's it's what's called a zoonotic infection, which has come from an animal. And uh, I had a, recently received a phone call from SafeWork SA saying, you've, Ash, you've got an improvement notice, which is not something that any business wants. And it's like, okay, what, what's happened? Well, one of our staff had contracted Q fever and they determined that the most likely uh, route that that staff member had contacted it was at work um, because they hadn't had any other uh, contact with animals. I still, my personal opinion is I, I don't really mind where the staff member contracted that. It was 
most importantly, he was in hospital and getting the right treatment. And, and fortunately, he's, he's healthy and well again. But just to sort of give you a bit of a chronology of it. So we use sheep in our vineyards in winter, like a lot of vineyards do. And sheep can carry um, Q fever. And, but the, so the, the thinking behind the mechanism of infection was that sheep in our paddock from 12 months ago pooped on the ground that had dried created uh you know potentially created uh, bacteria in the soil formed dust and then almost 12 months later that the staff member had picked up mm. and inhaled the dust and potentially the bacterium right so likelihood is pretty low and it could have been some other casual interaction but but it made our business aware of it and and i rang around all of the other industry uh, stakeholders go have you ever heard of this and no one had ever heard of it before and to my knowledge it's the first and only time that a vineyard workers potentially contracted q fever from overwintering sheep yeah so it's something that we've now sort of thought about and we've put some processes and policies in place so whilst we adjust sheep we don't actually even own sheep we just farmer brings his sheep into our properties all over the country now we put in processes um, where we don't handle the sheep you know, if if a lamb stuck or whatever, then that's call the farmer and make that problem go away. Or right. if there's a, you know, a fatality with a sheep or a lamb or something, that we get the farmer to come and handle that. A lot of farmers, a lot of, and this is something that I've learnt through this process. They've they're vaccinated against kid fever because they're continually handling. Um, whereas something that vineyard workers are not, uh, you know, routinely vaccinated against, mm. and so it's something that uh, as an industry we need to be. A, uh, aware of, uh, alert of, maybe not uh, alarmed about, but um, if your staff are handling sheep and physically handling sheep, then you probably want to talk to the... Just sheep or other animals? No, wild animals, or... you know, sheep, cattle, goats, you know, it's, I mean, cats and dogs or dogs can, can carry it as well, but it's pretty rare in that context. It's mostly abattoir workers that are you know, routinely vaccinated against this, and you know, but I think more and more people are running sheep through vineyards. Yep. over winter. So yeah, which is why I've, I've sort of, when we got the improvement notice, I sort of went to Sawyer and you know the, all the industry bodies and just said, hey, this is this has happened. I think we, as an industry, we should be aware of it, so that. Uh, which yeah, also yeah, it says it. a lot about you know the value of transparency and and honesty. There might be some people who just want to go, okay. They might be bad for business if this gets out. Let's lock it down, keep it in-house, sort it out ourselves. But by actually taking it out to industry, you can actually get an industry-wide solution. Yeah, or just an awareness, really. Frankly, I'm I'm, I'm moderately intelligent bloke, but I wasn't aware of it. Yeah. And uh, so I think, you know, again... If we're aware of something, we can do our best we can to engineer against it. And I've no... I'm no concerns about sitting here and chat about it or yeah. um, or talking about it. How sick did your staff member get? Uh, it's interesting. The symptoms for Q fever are how, how's this in the middle of a pandemic? They're respiratory symptoms, cough, you know, cold yeah. sort of yeah, right. flu-like symptoms with high fever. And so, you know, when the individual was there, we just all assumed that it was COVID, and it wasn't. And I think they did a very good job picking that up and got, uh, you know course of appropriate antibiotics and and uh, takes care of it but interestingly subsequently i've had conversations with a few other friends in ag and a few that have had it and and it really knocked them around 
and you know there's a small percentage that can have ongoing sort of lingering you know impacts from it as well so it's not something to be uh, ignored or taken lightly and it's it's interesting because I've always run sheep through our vineyards and never ever thought about it and I've, yeah. I've you know handled sheep and you know handled stuck lambs and things and never thought about it I'm acutely conscious of it now speaking of COVID what's it been like managing that among so many staff yeah it's been oh, I think we're all been on that that you know roller coaster and journey of unknown yeah when it first started that lockdown in the harvest period that was that was like a b-grade hollywood movie really that was that was pretty intense and we started to create cells within our staff and in different regions and i you know i asked a lot of my staff to sort of try to keep themselves uh, as cocooned as possible so that we could just get the crop off because that you know that was critical for us you know if we if we couldn't harvest our crop I think we were very lucky to be allocated as an essential um, uh, workforce and uh, that got us through the first sort of harvest period. Obviously coming into the second harvest period we had a bit more of an understanding and we had a bit more clarity and optics around that but um, it was still it was still probably one of the more challenging things we had to manage in making sure that we keep people safe and in the first instance and you know follow my own rules in that context and yet still operate the business and function so i'm super lucky we've got a great crew who understand many of us have been together for a long time but understand the importance of the business and took on some you know their own sort of personal sacrifices in cocooning down a bit um, during those periods so yeah and then it's really best been following everything that the daily media uh, yeah. reports said to do. We, we've talked about isolated examples of Q fever and once-in-a-lifetime events like COVID, but sort of a day-to-day -day issue in what we do is we work in a business that produces alcohol and, you know, are we doing enough to sort of talk about our relationship with alcohol and, and the way it exists in people's lives? But We know we, you know, we love wine, it's the reason we do what we do but you know it's not always the right thing for for people do we need to be more open and honest about those discussions around alcohol well, i think so Neil. i think i'm you know i'm loving a whole lot of things that we're doing with the no and low i think that that shows some of the things that we can innovate around some of the issues that you're talking about we, it's imperative that we maintain a social license to operate. Otherwise, we, you know, let's face it, we grow a product that people don't have to have, and mm. and you know, it's a it's in a space where if we don't maintain a social license to operate, then the overall scheme of you know water and resources and fuels and fertilizers and things that we we They'll go somewhere else. Yeah, we need to do that. So I think it's about like. It's like the earlier conversation about some of the things that we talked about. We need to just keep having that conversation and be brave enough to have that conversation out loud and all the opportunities that we have to make good decisions in that context for each of us. And, uh, and particularly for us as leaders in, in the industry, you know, how do we conduct ourselves at events? How do we responsibly uh, interact with alcohol is, is important. What limits do you put on yourself? What limits? Like during the week, drinking-wise? or uh, It depends on, you know, 
I, look, I, I'm mostly a social drinker in the context of, you know, if we're out with friends and family and things like that. But, you know, if it's Friday night and I'm sitting down watching a movie with my wife, we'll open a nice bottle of wine and share that together. And it's, been, it's interesting. I've got a 21-year-old son who's sort of... No limits. Well, no, it's interesting because <laughs> he's, he's actually really quite quite responsible and probably behaves a lot differently than I did when I was 21 as well. And I think I see that in the his generation. Well, really. they say they're drinking less than ever. Yeah, yeah. And, and still, you know, I've been really, really hot on never driving. I either drive or I drink. You know, I don't do... I and don't you have do to drive both. a lot, so... So, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I, I'm very comfortable, you know, driving to a function and sitting and not drinking as opposed to sitting counting drinks and things like that. I, I think as an exec in the wine industry, I need to be a lead by example in that context and that if I get picked up, God forbid, drink driving, that, that'd be, uh, that's not a good look and it's not something that uh, I want to have as part of my um, resume. If, if you see someone who, you know, there's a few warning signs there or you've got a bit of an inkling that they might have a bit of a problem with drinking, is that something that you would you would address with them or how might your approach go on about that? Because that's a pretty difficult thing to do. If one of my staff members, doesn't matter whether it's alcohol, whether it's potentially a drug issue or any any other health issue, then let's have a normalised conversation about that. I think it's, you know, we touched on before we sat down to record about, you know, SMED Foundation and some of the messaging they send around and the impact that that can have. And I think by normalising conversations just in our networks, in our, in our you know, staff uh, networks or in our sporting club networks, it makes it, it makes it easier to manage some of those things because if it's just about because it's not a taboo topic because we just talk about it, then, then I think that's how we, we all make better steps uh, moving forward. I suppose it can be difficult to bring that up without that person feeling like that's an, an attack on them or they're being accused of something and something that they should be ashamed of it or embarrassed about that might lead to them losing their job or whatever it is. And if it's a more of a normal, more normal discussion that's based on I'm concerned about your health because I care about you first and foremost, then reframing it that way and having, I suppose, changing culture so that people aren't ashamed or really embarrassed about maybe drinking too much, that you can have that conversation and then it, it can actually get through without people just being defensive and closing it off and, and acting like, no, there's no need for them to review their behaviour or they don't have any issue whatsoever. Yeah, again, again, it comes back down to that sort of standard we walk past, the standard we accept. And I think sometimes, you know, if I, if I jump back in the time machine, one of the great things that, you know, having been in private practice where patients walk through your door, you shut the door and you have one-on-one -on -one conversations of, you know, that are under pure confidentiality circumstances, you get to understand, I don't find those conversations that difficult to have. I think they're really important conversations to have and, and particularly with some of our workforce, they might be single guys or girls or you know if you're not having them at work they're not having them so it's really mm. it's a great opportunity to have all of those conversations and not just about you know alcohol or it's about their own mental health it's about you know it's about men's health checks or whatever they talk about you know and, and laugh about going in your prostate checked or whatever it is that 
becomes normalised in the in that environment. And I think when you talk about your 21 year old son, I think that's a generation that's actually better at having those sort of conversations and and being more you know, aware of a whole suite of things. And maybe it's it's up to the older generations to to really lift their game and think about it a bit more. Yeah, I think so. How much do you think work health and safety is improving across the whole interest industry? Have you seen things change much? And absolutely, I think there's a continuum. Though I think we're all on a you know a, a continuum. If you could go into certain sectors and certain farms, and the answer would be uh, that we're back in 1950, and you can go into some organisations and you think, gee, I got to lift my game because that is that is very impressive. And I think it's really important that we have that continuum so you can always look across the fence to to what next practice is and what's best practice i think some of the um, big companies do that at an elite level and again i started by sort of saying you know we're great as an industry helping each other out i've many many times go have you got this this form or this a policy for this yep bang here it is just white out the the you know logo on the top and and grab that and i think that's something that you know more and more people should do and people can ring me or email me and ask for a policy or procedure. I'm happy to hand that stuff out because you, you sort of also don't know what you don't know. If you've grown up with mum and dad on a, on a farm and you've always grown your property. I've seen how it's been done and you yeah. just assume that's how it's done. Then yep. you don't really know. So that's where some of Lisa and Wine Great Council and all the, the seminars and things that we that we go to are really important. Sawyer do a great job in that context as well. So there's sort of no excuse for not knowing, but it's, you know, we talked about finding the time to go to a doctor and get some vital checkups done. So finding the time to go to that seminar for, you know, you know injection of OH&S and, and work health and safety updates is on the list and it just needs to be, you know, prioritised. I think that, you know, I've, and I've spoken to some of the agri-chem suppliers about this at some of their management meetings, they've got a responsibility or an opportunity when they're handing over a drum of something, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity mm -hmm. to check in and make sure the individual knows exactly what they've got. If you're not selling them a pair of gloves and a, you know, overalls with it, then you've got to reflect and ask yourself, are you doing the right thing by, uh, by that individual in that business? And so it's, I guess it's the whole community of the industry looking at every opportunity that we can to make what we do safer. As someone who's you know, a leader in the industry, um, you must think a lot about where money gets injected into the industry and where money ends up being spent in this business. So you know, if we suddenly made you Australia's viticultural dictator and director and <laughs> gave you, you know, $100 million in R&D money to spend anywhere you thought was most useful across the whole national vineyard landscape, what would you be doing with it? Recently, Nick, got, so I chair the Australian Vignerons Committee and I try to uh, get uh, experts in and give us a look at what's next. And we were sort of looking at some rootstock stuff and one thing led to another and we got Dr Ian Dry in uh, to present to us from CSIRO mm -hmm. and he explained to us what the Italians were doing with gene editing Prosecco. And I'm like, oh, well, that's not going to be relevant to us because it's GMO and we're, we're not doing that. And he goes, no, 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 it's not GMO, it's gene editing, Ash. And I'm like, 
Yeah, so, so it's what's not the regulated. And and so this was probably one of the most profound things that I've learned in my 25 years, and I think could be potentially the biggest game-changing event from a grower's lot in life. But so gene editing uses a special technology called CRISPR-Cas9, which is a, it's effectively a, a gene surgical tool that you can go in on the existing DNA and say, okay, that gene we know makes the plant susceptible to powdery mildew. So if we go and just surgically chop that gene, that plant, same DNA, same Shiraz, same everything, is now not susceptible to powdery mildew. So this is going on. The Italians are working on it in Prosecco. The Americans have, uh, are going flat out at it. it. And it's now the EU and the US FDA have said, we're not regulating gene editing because it's not GMO. So there's no requirement for listing or labeling or anything like that. But you think about that from the context of a grower and you go, okay. And, you know, we're still, we're still years away from that, but if the next time you roll your vineyard and you're planting a Shiraz vine, that doesn't have to be sprayed from a downy and powdery mildew point of view. We don't have to have conversations about yeah. you know, the chemicals that we're using, the mm. safety gear that we're going. It's, it's game changing. And then if we think about the costs of that, it's enormous. So I think, you know, like all of these things, the devil will be in the detail as to whether that immunity is you know, robust and lasting, but I would be spending a big whack of that money hunting that down because I think the Australian wine industry grew up on an environment where we were maybe not encumbered by the sort of rigours of some of the, you know, older established European regions yep. and that we were the innovators. While we're falling behind in that context, they're one of those sort of more traditional countries is going flat out and... Uh, so I think we need to be careful that um, we're not falling a few steps behind in that context. So, yeah, that's that's where I'd be liking to see some of that go. Well, yeah, that sounds like a very profound change and mm. money spent well. Three quick questions to end on. Ash, who makes your favourite wine in SA? I once did a absolute blind tasting of high-end Shiraz's with the old group of crew in brown paper bags and Jim Barry's and Mark was stand out that and it was you know first time I sort of opened that up and said you know what I reckon that's pretty good value even though it's a big price tag that was pretty impressive wine red or white red and what makes the SA industry special in your eyes uh, the collaboration the fact that we can eat we can pick up the phone to pretty much anybody in the industry and we'll help each other out Nice and simple. That's Sweet. A good consistent answer. I think that's one thing we've heard across when asking everyone that question. And it's the same answer without hesitation or, you know, having to second guess it. It's, yeah. It just comes naturally that that is the, the key thing that makes this industry special. Even I've got mates that it should be our competitors, but, you know, we know where the line is and we still, you know, you're still going to be there to help out. Good stuff, mate. Thank you. Thank Thanks you very much. Thanks for listening. Head to the Wine Grape Council of South Australia website for links and further resources. This is part of a bigger conversation, so feel free to share this podcast with your mates and look after yourselves. Cheers. Cheers.